The Athletic. Totally Football Show today, Premier League weekend. Stockley Park has worse video reviews than Michael Flatley's Blackbird. Fact, we count up the controversies and applaud the players who nevertheless didn't perform flatly in round six. From Anthony to McAllister, from Brighton to the Bees to Bournemouth. Plus, don't look now, refereeing controversy, here comes Diego Costa. And could Celtic make Real Madrid come a cropper? All that and more in this Totally Football Show. Well then, Monday the 5th of September. Hello, listener. And uh, we have for you today uh, Daniel's story of the eye. Hello, Daniel. Adrian Clark of the Handbreak Off Arsenal podcast from The Athletic. And also the What the EFL podcast. Mm. And Rory Smith of the New York Times. <laughs> was that a, and, man, a Mancunian accent? <laughs> It was, a, it was a Matt Berry homage, but a very poor one. Rory's new book, Expected Goals, is out now. Rory. Hello. Hello. Uh, it's the story of modern football's great data revolution. Or perhaps you say data. I'm not sure. I would say data, yes. All right, then. Do you, do you say data? Is that a thing? Let's call the whole thing off. No, let's have a chat about this later on also, because I haven't as yet. I just My copy's just arrived in the post. Uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing lots about it, particularly the joke about Paul the Octopus. Is it a good joke? I think it's quite a good joke, but I'm worried that I might have um, I might have raised expectations too high. Okay. Well, we'll judge for ourselves later on. Will you give us the joke later on? No, it's, it's, a, it's a joke that works in context. That's oh. all. It's, I don't want to cost myself sales. I mean, that is the reason to buy the book, that single joke. So if I give it away for free... No. Are there pictures... There are no pictures. It's a, it's free of both pictures and equations. All right. Book. Well, we'll try selling it a little bit harder later on. Adrian, just want to shout out to your appearance at Roots Hall on Saturday for the National League encounter between Southend and Torquay. Yeah, I was the guest of honour. I was so chuffed to get the invite. And I'm not going to lie, it was a real buzz to to go out onto the pitch again and with, with sort of you know there's quite a lot of people there. I think there's about 5,000 there mm-hmm. and and get a good reception I was, they sort of made me walk, <laughs> they made me walk out through the sort of mascots and the flags I had to do the obligatory high five with the shrimp of course and then I had to go all the way to the centre circle and sort of applaud all sides and it and it was really nice they were actually clapping back which was yeah amazing so um yeah it was just a, obviously it's a long long time since I've been in the middle of the pitch at Roots Hall with a crowd there and just having that memory again was was fantastic so yeah really grateful for the invite um but yeah it was a fantastic experience beautiful Southend subsequently losing uh, 2-1 to Torquay but uh, but still but still uh, Daniel you meantime went to Forest Bournemouth and Man United Arsenal you didn't go to Forest Bournemouth you did go to Man United Arsenal yes anything else no all right, Nothing else this weekend. Well, that's very much one of the top things we're going to be talking about. A match that saw Arsenal's winning run ended by Manchester United, who now themselves won four straight games. Elsewhere this weekend, as you probably saw, both Man City and Liverpool were held to draws by Aston Villa and Everton, respectively. Bournemouth had the comeback shock of the weekend at the city ground. And at Brighton, Leicester took the lead before tumbling to a 5-2 defeat. That's their fifth straight loss. Do you know, I think six games in, we could affect a, a shy glance 
at the table, like a Victorian espying a comely ankle, perhaps? Yeah, I mm. told you that's always been the rule. So All right. Look at six games and... You have six of the big six in the top seven, and Brighton is the exception, which feels absolutely perfect for early season. All right. Leicester are in last place, already three points adrift of the four teams grouped above them. That's Forest, West Ham, Villa and Everton. At the other end, Arsenal still top. Man City, Spurs and Brighton are the top four with them. They're just two points between that quartet. And Man United are only a point behind in fifth with Chelsea sixth and Liverpool seventh, six points off the top. All right, then. Let's talk about Sunday's action and first of all, Man United Arsenal. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Away from Gabriel, here's Sancho. Rolled up for Marcus Rashford. One more here for Anthony! Take a bow, new boy! You are a red on day one! Peter Drury's take there on Man United new boy Anthony. One of the standout features of this fine win for for Man United. Daniel, you were there. Mm. A highly entertaining match. Yeah, I mean, ironically, taking a bow was just about the only thing Anthony didn't do in his celebration because he <laughs> he sort of did four... He celebrated with, by kissing the badge, which is controversial in itself, in my opinion, after 35 minutes at a new club. Uh, he then sort of went back and growled at the crowd or growled at the camera he then turned back and realised he hadn't yet put his ball up his shirt, so also did that. I sort of really like this sort of celebration by committee. Um, but yes, I mean, Manchester United were were the lesser team for large passages of play, but it reminded me of one of those Arsene Wenger Arsenal performances at Old Trafford where everyone leaves saying, yeah, it was good, but... And the killer instinct was, was lacking and Manchester United... 100% had it because they made the most of the chances. I thought Christian Eriksen was brilliant at kind of dictating the moments of play that mattered. And Marcus Rashford looks looks happy again. And I know there'll be a kind of huge amount of analysis about why that might be. But to my mind, he's, he's just playing as a centre forward, which is what he came through as. And he's not on the left. He's not being asked to kind of muck in. He's asked to stay on the defender's shoulder and and run into space, and he looked far happier doing that. Mm. It was going on that run that, that did it, I think, Daniel, after which <laughs> Man United themselves have gone on a run. Uh, wh- what do you think about Daniel's analysis of the Gunners there, Adrian? It's fair. Yeah, no doubt about it. The stats tell a story. 48 touches inside the box, but just three shots on target. I mean, that isn't that isn't a ratio to be proud of. Lots and lots of pressure, but they they fiddled around with the ball, didn't they, inside the, the final third a little bit too much. Manchester United didn't have 48 touches in the box. They had 17, yet they had double the number of shots on target with six. So they, they had the penetration. I think it was a very good Manchester United display. They did what they, you know, they defended pretty well. They played as a team and then they picked off Arsenal at the opportune moments. When Arsenal did leave their midfield empty, when the structure was a little bit loose, they, they made advantage of it quite brilliantly, really. So, yeah, I think they were bad goals that Arsenal conceded. I think Sambi Lekonga was sort of caught inside the opposition half, wide for two of the three goals, which isn't ideal for a defensive midfielder. And and, and, and the back, back four were just a little bit too high, weren't they, with their line? So, yeah, th- th- there'll be frustration. I think from an Arsenal end, there, there's also a, a feeling that of what might have been had mm. that goal not been uh, not been chalked mm. off because yeah. rare I moment mean, of refereeing controversy. Yeah, this we weekend, haven't seen many of those. Have we? Martinelli's. <laughs> would, 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 okay, I mean, 
What, what did you make of that? Uh, Rory, your eye, eyeballs have just gone skywards. They've rotated backwards into your skull at the mention uh, of refereeing controversy. Yeah, the, 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 it's not been a great weekend for refereeing, it has to be said. Both uh, remote refereeing and the people who are in the stadium have both uh, had, had a bit of a problem this weekend. Um, yeah, I... I'm not sure. I don't want to. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I think a lot of the problems with the refereeing controversy that we seem to be living through every week now is because people don't really understand what's what the rules are anymore. And you see lots of kind of false claims and screenshots on on Twitter timelines from the wrong moment. You being used as evidence. There's, there's a whole fake news air to it. Is that that Odegaard situation? Mm. Is that a foul? Any foul in the build up to a goal? it has to be called back for? Or is it if the referee's made a clear and obvious mistake? What's the criterion there? To me, that's not a clear and obvious mistake. You can, you can say that's a foul. It, it could be given as a foul pretty easily. But equally, it's not a massive foul. Is it? It's not really obvious. I sort of watched it two or three times and thought, well, if that's not given, probably everyone in the stadium stands up and goes, Rah! but yeah. you're, not, you're not shocked that it's not given. So if that's, that's my take clear- exactly. That's a, my yeah. take exactly. It might have been a foul. Yeah. But it might not have been. And the referee didn't think it was a foul at the outset. And I'll tell you what, he didn't think it was a foul for a long time when he was looking at the monitor. Yeah. No one yeah. that is sure mm. that they have made a, uh, a really bad mistake, a blooper, needs mm. to look at the replay as often as he did. So I, th- I think that's where Arsenal's great frustration comes in. For me, it was, a, it, it was a 50-50. Could have been a foul, couldn't have been. But that's the problem, isn't it? That so many of these decisions are, well, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. And that, that is the thing that I think we as fans have to take responsibility for because we have created this whole situation. This is, this is, this is not on the referees. This is on football culture is, as a whole. Is it on us? Is yeah, it on us? It's, it's on us, particularly as fans and the media. I, I really yeah. believe that we've, we've got ourselves into a situation where, well, I suppose you know, maybe it's the situation we want to be in. Just, there's, there's just endless controversy, so there's always something to talk about. I've always been a believer that VAR had no place in, in uh, this sport. Uh, I think give, it, I think it might have had a place if it wasn't being brought. Essentially, to my yeah. mind, it's it was brought in because people couldn't accept mistakes, and that is not a viable platform with which to bring in any new. Why not? Whether yeah. it's technological, whether it's change to the laws, because those people were never they weren't not accepting the decisions because. They were howlers. They were not accepting the decisions because they went against their team. And no, okay, has well, that's a different question. Biases. If it's about ironing out mistakes, that's one thing. But for example, Alan Shearer on Match of the Day on Saturday said VAR's not the problem. It's the people using it that is. I, I think VAR was missold. It was, uh, it was advertised as a solution to mistakes, which is why I was surprised with what I thought you'd said. And it clearly isn't because for me, the kind of fallacy behind this idea that changing the people is going to make a difference is that it's always people. So you're just kicking the the error down the, down the road a little bit. Yeah, you probably get a better percentage of right calls with VAR uh, than you did without. But for me, the fundamental principle is that you cannot have a free-flowing spectacle like football, which is ultimately an entertainment, and then just stop it so that you can go back and reanalyze things that, that happen. It just doesn't make any sense for the, for, the, for the game as a spectacle. That's absolutely right. And the, the other big thing that's happened since the introduction of VAR is, is mission creep that it's meant to be... They brought it. They started talking about it because of the Thierry Henry goal that knocked Ireland out of the World Cup, the handball goal. And in that sort of situation, yeah, by all means, you should have some sort of capacity. You don't even need a guy in a, in a booth in Stockley Park. You just have, have a TV that the referee could go to and some, one of the, you know, the fourth official says, hang on, there's a major error there. But since, since those kind of 
seedlings were sown. It's become this thing where they're using it to relitigate almost every decision if they want to. And Adrian hits this, the Odegaard one's a great example, because that is neither a foul nor not a foul. And that is the major- there's a lot of situations in football like that. And until we as a football culture can can accept that, and that's I count myself in that account, fans in that, players, man- managers particularly, everybody has to accept that there are a lot of things that are both kind of fouls and kind of not fouls. And that's the nature of the game. But if you're trying to trying to litigate each of those searching for an objective truth, all you're going to get is problems because it doesn't exist. And football, more than any other sport that uses technology, has far more subjectivity. You know, talk about cricket and it's did the ball pitch outside leg or on leg and that's non-subjective in rugby was the pass forward or was it not forward that's not subjective football has so much subjectivity that I I think we underestimated how much subjectivity there were in the laws because we judged everything on a I can see what's happened there or or I can't accept what's happened there we didn't view it in a that is 100% anything because there are so few even even something like the handball law of did Mm. it hit his hand clearly has various layers of subjectivity below that and it's impossible to get right because as you say James when you stop the game you create a pinch point and when you create a pinch point you are implicitly saying we are now taking time to get this 100% right and that is not possible right you just had a season well you've had countless seasons in in, in the championship with with Forest with Novar was it better uh, I mean, I much prefer, you know, having watched one and worked on the other, I much prefer football without bar. I kind of groan now every time the referee goes to the monitor because the idea that it's going to stop the controversy is, is actively untrue now. It's just going to create another layer of it. Mm. For me, it's like watching a, a film with somebody who keeps pressing pause on the, yeah. on the remote. But, <laughs> <It's very yeah. laughs> mm. Anyway, ironically, that's what we've done with our analysis of Man United Arsenal, a, uh, a VAR review of the... Uh, Man United, though, was it four weeks ago they were done 4-0 by Brentford? So, Mm. Ten Hag love. He has got every decision right since then. In hindsight, that defeat, as shambolic as it was, almost created a mandate for him to say, "Okay, we've tried it every other way, we're now going to try it 100% my way. And the calls he's got right since then are are dropping Shaw for Malassia because it, it... even though I'm not sure Malassia is a better player, it it feels like a better fit just because he's new. Dropping Maguire for that Varane-Martinez partnership, which was an easier decision because Martinez was new and Varane's a tremendous central defender. Playing Eriksen in that kind of holding midfield role or, or reserve midfielder role has worked really well. Playing Rashford as a striker has worked well. And and when you have a mandate and things subsequently go pretty well, it's quite easy to see how that can snowball into some really positive thinking, which which actively helps the team in, in the crunch moments. Huh? I've got a lot of respect for, for Ten Hag and the way that he's changed his philosophy because they're not playing the football that he wants to play. This isn't the Ajax way. This isn't what he was used to. This wasn't the plan. In pre-season, I've got it on good authority, that he was bollocking players for playing long passes. No, stop. We don't do that. We play through the lines. Bang, 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 bang. It's all about pass-move football. 
and he's 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 rode backwards on that. He's he's changed his mind because he realizes that when teams press them, they're not quite good enough to do that. And 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 the stats are quite staggering. I think the first match, seven percent of the of the passes were long. No, the first match, nine percent of their passes were long. Second match, seven, and then you you jump to twenty percent against Liverpool. And since then, it's been thirteen, fifteen, etc. So so they they are gone much more direct, but they're going direct because it suits them. Because mm. they are a counter-attacking team still at the moment. They will develop into something else. But at the moment, what we saw against Arsenal yesterday is what they do best. And I, I thought it was a very good Manchester United display, I have to say. Um, they looked much more like a team than, than they have done for a long while. There's a really nice natural balance to that team now. And he's he's done it by making two really big calls. Just dropping your captain is a massive call. And it's one that three of the last Man United managers refused to do. And then fairly bluntly... Kind of making it clear that Ronaldo is not in that first choice eleven. This is Cristiano Ronaldo, who's one of the greatest players of all time, and Ten Hag just made it clear that well, actually, no, it's Sancho, Rashford, and Anthony that's my strike force. That's remarkable. I agree with Adrian. I think it'll be interesting to see how they develop. I think the the key for any manager is to have a principle that you're working towards without being totally blinded by it. And Ten Hag seems to have that ability. There will come a point, and this is what I think is really interesting about about all of the the five teams beneath Man City where teams stop letting them do what they want. And you see that Liverpool and Chelsea certainly are, are in a situation now where teams are just are not helping them play their game and they're finding that difficult to, to deal with a little bit. It will be interesting to see whether, whether United, if they build up a head of steam, will they suddenly find a different sort of opposition? So they've got used to teams basically thinking they can go to Old Trafford, particularly, and have a track. That might stop. And how United fare when that happens will be really interesting. Mm. They have Palace away next weekend. Man City in a month. Interesting tests ahead for Man United and their new friend and teacher, Eric Ten Hag. Uh, Anyway, fine win at the weekend. Uh, Also on Sunday, that remarkable Brighton-Leicester match. Neil Laws writing in saying, after six games, which team has surprised you the most for good and for bad? Well, possibly... The answers to both of those categories were meeting at the Amex on Sunday. Would that be fair in this 5-2 win for the Seagulls? I don't know if Brighton are that much of a surprise, are they? I think th- th- that probably is the answer, and maybe I'm just being a contrarian. Well, I'm with you. They the started sake, very well last year, content. didn't they? Mm. Yeah, and they're a good team. You know, you kind of... You expect them to... I mean, you don't expect them to finish in the top four, but you expect them to, to win a lot of games. You expect them to finish in the top ten. You you expect the, st- the type of football they play. You know that they're effective. They seem to be a little bit more efficient in front of goal mm. than they were last season, although that may change. I, I wonder if there's a streaky element to that. They've strengthened their squad quite smartly. They they do all the, thing, all the things that we, we sort of say clubs should do to be good, and they are good. So I don't know how much they're a surprise. I think Leicester... Right. are very much a surprise for bad, and I worry about them quite a lot. Well, I'm sure you do. What was a surprise was them actually taking the lead in this game in the opening minutes, Riccolici, Ian Acho. Less than a quarter of an hour later, though, and Brighton were in front after a Luke Thomas own goal and then Moses Casado. Pats and Dakar equalised for Leicester before the break, 2-2. Then what happened? What happened in Brendan Rodgers' half-time team tour? Mm. I mean, what happened is that Leicester were unable to escape the problems that have they've haunted them for most of the early season. I, I agree with Rory, I'm not sure Brighton are necessarily a surprise, but I think it is true to say that these are probably the two most opposite clubs in the Premier League as things stand. Um Brighton with their you know the, the their 
willingness to sell at a price, their ability to sell at the highest price because they have already bought the players in advance that they want to replace them, which Leicester's problem is not that they couldn't buy players, it's that they needed to sell to buy and that the rest of the league knew that and therefore they thought, well, we'll just sleep on this a bit because um, at some point they're going to have to sell and it weakens Leicester if we buy the players late in the window because they can't replace them. Um, Brighton get round that by proactively planning, which is something that, that Leicester don't seem to have done. They also look to what we might call certainly in mainstream terms as niche markets and exploit those markets to the full whereas if you look at Rogers' signings at Leicester it's it's Vestergaard it's Bertrand it's Iosi Perez it's it's established Premier League players that probably are beyond their peak so they are two opposite clubs and you know when two opposite clubs meet quite often what happens is that the better well-run club the really well coached team exploits the other and that's exactly what happened in the second half Mm. What almost happened in the second half was an Alexis and McAllister uh, hat-trick, but VAR once again weighed in on, on this one with that ex- extraordinary strike ruled out. But that was for... What was that for? It Was it an offside? In the, yeah, in the build-up. Which no one I mean, had appealed it, for. No, exactly. Mm. That's the great frustration. But, Another wonderful goal mm. gets chalked off. But thankfully, but, McAllister sort of made amends, didn't he? I mean, He, he certainly did. He certainly was, did. He looks a player, doesn't he? He's he's a prime example of of what Brighton are about. I don't think many of us had really known too much about Alexis McAllister. Was he Scottish? Was he South American? You know, it's it's like who is this guy? He's taken time to sort of work out what, what his best position is. He can play in a number of different roles. He's now become a bit of a midfield general, hasn't he? He's he's got four goals in his last four, and he's clearly got a rocket. Right foot. The other thing that the point of note to make is that as a defensive midfielder, he's top of the shop at the moment. No one has regained possession more often than Alexis McAllister in the Premier League this season. 64 ball recoveries from him, which is staggering, really. Uh, six ahead of Declan Rice, who we know is pretty good at that sort of thing. So so Alexis McAllister is a player that maybe we should, should take a little bit more note of. Very quickly on Leicester, I'm not going to pin it all on the keeper, but... The keeper is the last line of defence, a big position. For me, it's always the second most important role in the team outside of a goal scorer. And it feels a little bit negligent of Leicester to 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 not have thought to replace Kasper Michael sooner because it, I think most people accepted that, that he was going to leave. And it was almost like an afterthought. Oh, well, we've got Danny Ward. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll just stick with him. That's fine. And, and, and I think he struggled at the start of this season. He hasn't got that authority and if your keeper doesn't have authority it can filter through very easily to the rest of the team they can become a little bit little bit wobbly which is exactly what exactly what for example Brighton have done with someone like Moses Casado and Alexis McAllister they know Eve Basuma is going to be leaving but they've proactively planned for that and those players are ready to hit the ground running Danny Ward is a decent keeper but he's been sat on Premier League benches for half a decade now and it's hard to then suddenly be told you're the number one with about three days' notice by the sound of it. Mm. The replacement that uh, Leicester might be looking to make, meanwhile, according to some people, is the manager. How long do you think Rodgers has? We saw Parker, Scott Parker, fired last Monday. We've got an international break looming. Traditional time, of course, for clubs to make a change. Five straight defeats. Are you expecting Leicester to be thinking about a change? Really briefly. Yes, they, they'll, they'll have to be thinking about it. They'll have to be aware of it. But then actually that's where the, the failure to succession plan on the pitch becomes relevant because if they've not done that 
for the manager, then that's when you really have a problem. Mm. Well, we shall see. All right, next up, we'll be on to Saturday's action and some big surprises in there, especially for Adrian. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Jacob Ramsey. I can't see a way Villa can cause City trouble this weekend, said Adrian Clark. And you weren't the only one, Adrian. We all had that one down as another surefire Man City win, probably with another fat haul and possibly even a hat-trick for Haaland. But hello, a 1-1 draw at uh, Villa Park. Could have possibly been more for the home side who came back against the champions to earn uh, an unexpected point. Yep, none of us saw this one coming. I mean, they were rubbish at Emirates Stadium in midweek. I, I just didn't see how they could keep the score down, if I'm perfectly honest, against against Manchester City. But they did. It was it was better, wasn't it? At both ends of the pitch, they sort of they worked harder. They they they, they ran harder. I think I think that that's an underrated quality. I think it's something they've, they've sort of meandered through their games until this point. But this was a bit more like the early Steven Gerrard Aston Villa. He was bold enough to go with two up front. And he was also bold enough to stick with Leon Bailey when he wasn't really in the game. And he made some changes, but he kept him on. And, and ultimately, he, he produced a, a great finish, didn't he, Leon Bailey? I thought that was a terrific, terrific goal. So, no, it was it was an excellent performance. And I think that they probably did warrant the point because they 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 withstood a, a city storm in the second half very nicely and then and then came on strong themselves. So, yeah, well, well done, Villa. And there's maybe life in, in, in Gerrard's tenure. Well, yeah. A lot of people wondering how long he had on the Villa bench, but to go behind against City, given the week, as you mentioned, that Villa had had, and given the form that City were in, scoring six against Forest midweek, to come back and they could even have won it, had it not been for another refereeing controversy, Daniel. Yes, another refereeing controversy. Um, I I think to to make the comparison between Villa that we've just spoken about, or Gerrard that we're speaking about, and, 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 and Leicester, it does look as if those players are still... You know, it's a, it's a whacking great football cliche, but 
play they are playing for the manager they are fighting the running was there there was a determination particularly at 1-0 down to get back in the game we should say city kind of went back to a, one of their old habits which is going 1-0 up and then dominating but not killing the game off emmy martinez was excellent city had a, an awful lot of not just shooting chances but kind of breaks that they they messed up the final pass on and overhit the ball which has been unlike them in, in recent weeks. They've been incredibly efficient in early season. So you need that against City. But Gerard will point to Ashley Young and say, this is what I want from your players. You know, he's not been shy, Gerard, to point at individuals and say, I just need more from you and we will be better. And, and Young comes on for the injured cast. He, he had played less than a minute in the Premier League this season and basically dealt with Phil Foden and then Kevin De Bruyne when he came over to that side as well, uh, which at 37 is no mean feat. I would say that the the decision to rule out Coutinho's goal, which which was a funny one, does the players had all stopped, so you don't know whether he would have scored had had the flag not gone up. I think that's the worst of the weekend because that Brilliant. is the exact opposite of what they have been told to do. We spent all this time with the linesmen doing this stupid thing where they refuse to put the flag up, <laughs> yeah, yeah. even when everyone can see, even on t- even if you're not watching a game, you can tell that someone's offside, and then there is one that is. Well, a not offside, but there's no way he could have seen that that was offside in um, in real time. Largely, just he wasn't offside, <laughs> and and yet he, that's the one that he puts the flag up. That that to me, it's well the Chelsea one, which I'm sure we'll come on to. That might that might just edge it, but the the Coutinho one is definitely worse than the um, than the Newcastle controversy. That is a, that is an appalling decision. It's it is the opposite of what they've been told to do. And I, I have no idea why why the linesman chose to do it. I would the one the other thing that I think is really interesting about City is that, and this is based on them drawing two games this season. I agree with Daniel that they've been quite efficient, but they've also looked a little bit shaky at the back. And and they're second. They've had a great start to the season. They've won four, drawn two, no problem there. They've scored a lot of goals. Um, although they have scored ten of their goals against Bournemouth and Forest, so that's two newly promoted teams, which skews it slightly. But, you know, they, they take the lead against Newcastle, then concede three, which is unlike City. They were 2-0 down against Palace, which is unlike City against any team other than Palace, who obviously have quite a good record against them. Then they dropped points at Villa, who were, as Adrian said, three days previously had been abysmal. You can read that situation two ways. You can either say, this is incredible, does City keep getting themselves out of trouble and they keep you know finding ways to win or, or at least draw a game where they've where they've messed up a little bit. But it doesn't quite indicate to me that they've got the same kind of control on games that they had last season and in the previous Pep years. Mm. And that I've, always, I've kind of gone into this season assuming that they will be immune to the chaos that is going to ensue over the next sort of 10 months. But I don't know. There's something slightly unpredictable about them. What Roy says is absolutely true. It, it feels like, not an arrogance, but... It, Guardiola clearly wants to do this thing where he basically has two defenders on the pitch and gets the fullbacks really high. And Newcastle spotted that kind of fortune favours the brave in that regard. In that if you have a player like Alan San Maximin who's prepared to run directly at you, you can create chances against them. I'm surprised that Guardiola has continued to do it, which he, he did against Aston Villa at the weekend. It would be interesting to see now if if teams just think, well, if we sit back against City, we'll lose four or five so why not just try and make it chaotic why not try and just kind of get into their heads a little bit because someone like Kyle Walker I think you can if he's being asked to do two or three jobs at the same time I think you can kind of get into his head and unnerve him a little bit Mm. all right well perhaps the 
Premier League title race not as cut and dried as many were anticipating. A curiously, meanwhile, while Stevie G was stuffing up Pep's plans, his England midfield legend, now under pressure manager counterpart Frank Lampard, was doing the same thing to the other big title contenders, or at least pre-season, Liverpool, who had a nil-nil draw at Goodison Park. This was nil-nil, but it was also the Premier League game that's produced the most shots this season, 37. And what an extraordinary last half hour with Jordan Pickford, the protagonist. Yeah, he was brilliant, wasn't he? Eight saves, I think, from Pickford in total. Although, I have to say that, that maybe Alisson, at the other end of the pitch, made the... The better what, saves. Yeah I, I, yeah, I just think, yeah, there's some amazing saves from Alisson. Two really big ones. Alisson has so much less to do than any other keeper or any of the other top keepers. But but he's great in big moments, isn't he? And I, I think he, he earned his wages in that game just as much as, as Pickford did. But yeah, it was um, yeah, it was a decent, decent game, wasn't it? But, but Liverpool have been so wasteful, haven't they, this season? They've had so many chances creating for fun but but not creating good enough chances that's the that's the issue and and there is a bit of a a problem I think with Mo Salah I think you have to say that he needs to he needs to be getting into much better goal scoring positions the stats are really interesting on Salah he has created 24 chances in open play okay that is 10 more than any other player in the Premier League this season so he's he's not had a bad start to the season he's involved he's making things happen but he's not the one having the shots. I think he's joint eighth in terms of actually having shots, which is unusual because I think in the last few seasons he's been he's been top of the rankings in in that and and not in the chances created. So so I think his role needs needs tweaking a little bit. But yeah, in general, I think Everton should be really proud proud of their performance. I'm sure I'm sure Pickford will be very very happy if they hadn't bought Neil Mope and had bought a striker. I think Mopé's a really, really smart signing for Everton. I've got to admit, I, I know he's not the most efficient in front of goal, but he's, I think he scored more Premier League goals for Brighton than anybody else. So he's not, yeah, but, he's not um, terrible. He's such a smart runner. His movement's really good. He does go through purple patches of scoring goals. And I think that is, that is as, as much as you can ask for, for someone who is effectively your, your second choice striker until Dominic Calvert-Lewin's fit. Well, on the evidence of recent weeks, that's your first choice striker, though. Uh, I'd I, I stand corrected, Roy. It just struck me as a strange thing for a club that struggles to score goals to spend money on a striker who struggles to score goals. But <laughs> Maybe I, they I thought he fit thought, in. I actually thought, watching that game on Saturday, last season when watching Everton and Calvert-Lewin wasn't there, it was so obvious that Dominic Calvert-Lewin wasn't there. Actually, watching them on Saturday, hmm. partly because of how busy Mope is, I kind of forgot that they had Dominic Calvert-Lewin not there for the first time in about a year, which has to be a good thing. And there does mm. seem to be this kind of determination amongst Everton players, managers, supporters for, for this to work out and that the way to for it to work out is kind of good old-fashioned hard work. I mean, they have played... I don't like talking about transfer window winners because I think it's effectively it's a nonsense, but... If two of your best central defenders from last season get injured on the opening weekend and you end the transfer window with Connor Cody and James Karkovsky as your combination, for a manager in Frank Lampard who struggles to organise a defence, they are two defenders that if they're good at anything, it's organising themselves. They don't need an awful lot of instruction. They know what they're good at and they know how to make themselves good at it. That is a, a masterstroke that I think will probably keep Everton in the Premier League. Brilliant. Meanwhile, speaking of defenders, how about the Van Dyke refereeing controversy? It was... There's a there's a world in which that's a red card, but I don't I don't think it's the only world that exists. I think Fair we enough. have to believe in a multiverse approach. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's it. 
that that looks orange to me. That which mm. I know is a stupid thing to say. I'm, I, again, I don't know. I don't know if that is objectively a red card. I think the broader thing with Liverpool is that, as Adrian touched on, there's there's something not quite right. They're, they're simultaneously not playing too badly, but they they don't look like there's something that's been thrown off, and whether that's injuries or because there's been quite. I think one of the commentators on Saturday alluded to it. There has been a lot of change in that team. This is increasingly looking like a transition year for Liverpool where I don't think they can push City, uh, but they, they will obviously still be contenders for the top four. The big asterisk being that God knows what happens after the World Cup and who comes back injured and knackered. Mm. So you never you, you never know, there will be a random element. But they, they just seem slightly out of tune. Who do you think will be challenging City then, Rory, or the rest of you? It's a great question because it depends. it depends a little bit on what you need to challenge City. So yeah. if City, as Adrian mentioned, if City go and put that run... In fact, James, it was you, wasn't it? it as, as you mentioned, James, if City go on and put a run together of 10, 12, 15 wins, I don't think there's a team that can live with that. I don't think there's any other team capable of that. I think if I was Arsenal, I'd be relatively encouraged that although they lost at the weekend... And you, you could look at that and say, oh, that's the first decent team Arsenal have faced and they lost, typical Arsenal. And they played quite well. Again, there's a, there's a world in which that result goes the other way. And it may be that, that beating most of the teams in the Premier League is kind of enough to sustain a challenge this year. Chelsea looked relatively inconsistent. I think United could get close on momentum and emotion. That's, that's possible. But it, fundamentally, I think they're not good enough. Spurs? Maybe. I mean, Spurs, Spurs are going to be hard to beat, I think, this season. Um, but look, if anyone can get within 15 points of City, I think they'd have done well. Apart from really? Liverpool, who should be within, within within that of City. Yeah, no, I just don't see it. I mean, the gap was so vast last season. And yes, City are a little bit shaky, as, as Rory's outlined this, this time around. But that surely won't last. I, I just... I think Tottenham are getting better. I think Arsenal are getting better. Man United are getting better. Chelsea's getting slightly worse. But... Can they make up that gap on on City? I, I just I just don't see it personally. I think it might be a bit of a yeah sort of runaway title success. I'm afraid. There's also a there's there's a clear potential for post World Cup when Haaland has had weeks off of rest for them to go on one of those steamroller runs of 15 wins that Rory mentions. It's it's not even that you can see it happening. It's you you'd almost expect it with a, a fresh Haaland. Riyad Mahrez is also not going to be there. Mm. There's potential there if anyone else gets one or two key players injured for them just to completely railroad that second half of the season. Well, we shall see because football is nothing if not constantly surprising, as Adrian discovered only this weekend. <laughs> uh, Liverpool uh, this week will be visiting Napoli in the Champions League as the group stage of that competition gets underway. Napoli, who had a fine 2-1 victory Saturday night at Lazio with Ozyman on the score sheet and also the man they call Cavaradona, because his actual name is a lot more difficult, who is the European signing of the season, Rory. He is the most exciting player Mm. I have seen for years. Yeah. He is absolutely extraordinary. and it's, I've been, I was watching the Lazio game on Saturday night and, and it, it struck me that I think it's just he's, he's so... He feels different to everybody else. There is something unsystematised about... I can't say his real name, Kvaradona. He, is, he feels <laughs> like he is... He's not the best player in the world. He's not, as, you know, he's, not, he's not as technically gifted as loads of different players. He doesn't strike the ball as sweetly as De Bruyne, although his goal maybe suggests that's not true. But you can tell he's not come through at a major academy. 
there is some there's a throwback element to him. He yeah, he looks throwback, slightly absolutely slightly gangly. He's the wrong shape for the position he plays in. He does things you don't expect. He does things you don't. I suspect that managers would tell him not to do. And he is the, certainly six weeks into the season, he is the best player to watch in Europe, as far as I can see. Wow. Okay. Napoli picked him up for about 10 million euros, which has so far been a pretty good signing. I think he's on four four goals already this campaign. And uh, But the, the little pirouette for the one yeah. that hit the post. I mean, it's just you, out of nowhere, totally like weird thing to do. Little pirouette, 30 yards, like thunderbolt. Just he is worth watching. Just mm-hmm. Napoli will be worth watching for him alone. Okay. That's what uh, Liverpool are going to be doing. That's Wednesday night. Tuesday night, Manchester City will be away at Sevilla, uh, who have not had a good start to the season at all. Currently hovering on the edges of the relegation zone in La Liga. Six British sides in action in the Champions League group stage, all in all. You've got Chelsea at Dinamo Zagreb, Spurs. Taking on Marseille in the Diamond Lights derby. And Rangers at Ajax, that's on Wednesday. And possibly the most interesting of all, Celtic hosting Real Madrid. Four years out of the Champions League. And what a game to come back to, the European champions. But then again, Celtic possibly the side in the best form of any continental outfit right now. The Athletics' Kieran Devlin actually joins us now for a quick look ahead to the game. Kieran, what a fixture this looks set to be. What an atmosphere, first of all. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think everyone's really, really excited by it. Uh, five years now, well, away from the, <laughs> the top table. And uh, they've not played Real Madrid competitively since 1979, 1980. So I think everyone's very excited about it. As you know, it's going to be a massive challenge, but it's uh, quite the occasion as well. Mm. Celtic's form is pretty unmatchable for any side anywhere in Europe right now. What is it? Six wins out of six, 25 goals scored, just one conceded. The 9-0 last weekend and then a 4-0 in the old firm game this weekend. Yeah, they've been pretty sensational. Um, I think when you, every time there's a 9-0, obviously there's going to be a lot of questions on the, the spectrum of how bad were the losers and how good were the, the winners. But I do, I do genuinely think that it was tipped slightly, slanted towards Celtic were that good. And then on, on Saturday as well, they were outstanding. Um, but I think there may be a little degree of caution because the last time they were in amazing form ahead of a big European game. They then came up against Bodo Glimt and really lost 3-1 at home. Um, so I think there might be hopefully some lessons learned from, from that past experience. What, what do you think uh, Postacoglu's approach is going to be for Tuesday? I think... By and large, it will be the same way they set up against Ross County or Kilmarnock. Like, he has one plan and he sticks by it. Um, I think um, there may be a de- slightly more caution in, in how aggressively they press from the front. I think they might try and retreat into a bit more of a compact shape when it's clear that as any attempted press will <laughs> fail miserably. But I think, by and large, it will be the same tactics. Now, I guess... What everyone will say, though, that might be a recipe for disaster. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I think his, his rebuttal to that be this team will learn more from losing, playing their brand of football than just sitting in with 10 men behind the ball and losing 1-0. That mm. they will learn more as an educational experience rather than just losing games playing a football they're not familiar with. Right. And they might not actually lose this game. Real Madrid, who have a, a funny old record at the start of group stages. We saw them losing at home to Sheriff Tiraspol last year and in previous campaigns, Shakhtar have caused them problems. They do have Benzema, of course, and Rodrigo and Vinicius. They are the European champions. But whilst 
when the draw was made, a lot of people went, oh, that's tough for Celtic. I think in Spain, certainly a lot of people were thinking that's going to be tough for Real Madrid as well, going uh, to Glasgow. What, what, what do you think? Do, do you think Celtic have a chance? I think they, they, they absolutely have a chance. I think I think they will absolutely relish it. As I say, that this is they're going to, out there to compete with them. Um, in terms of the high the attacking, all out attacking football, it could it could go badly, but it, it could also go well. <laughs> I think that's the, the same thing. There may be have been a degree of scepticism and cynicism about their chances playing this style of football, but it could if they do compete. I think that will be really really encouraging. And if even if they don't get a positive result, if it's a performance that's that is positive, then they can really take that to to Shakhtar and Leipzig, which they might view as more. Uh, as results where they can properly maybe compete a bit better, maybe get more positive results from there. Excellent. Kieran, thank you so much. Uh, Enjoy the game. Thanks, James. Pleasure. The Athletics' Kieran Devlin. Uh, Daniel, you're going to be going along to this game. Yeah, and I think Kieran's last point on on kind of the positive atmosphere, the positive performance, whatever the result, I think that holds. He mentioned the, the defeat to Bodo Glimt and so many of Celtic's nights have felt like they're kind of the pressure is built up on them two, three days before kickoff. There's an onus on them to win the game and to produce. And for the first time in a long time, because they're back in the Champions League, that pressure isn't there anymore. They really do have the chance to go and play this kind of Ange Postacoglu all out attack, take it to a team that is better than them, but that they, that they can trouble. And I think they've got a chance in this group. The away the away game in in Leipzig is is obviously huge. Uh, Celtic beat Leipzig in their last home game, but lost the away leg. So I think that that's genuinely on a knife edge. Those two sets of fixtures, and if they can beat Shakhtar home and away, I do think they can qualify. You're absolutely right. In Spain, they do not appreciate the idea of being in a group with Celtic. They feel it has this kind of mystique playing at, at Parkhead that will drive Celtic on. And everything we've seen on Saturday suggests that. They are a team in incredibly rude health uh, who are like never before behind a manager who has created this mood that he believes is not just self-sustaining, but is only set to grow bigger. And yeah, I... I I sort of fancy them to get a point against Real Madrid, which is a a remarkable thing to think, really. I'm sure I'll be proved wrong, but it's going to be a heck of a night either way. I think you you can't underestimate the Parkhead factor. I remember Antonio Conte, after Juve played there, when he was manager, said that it felt as though the stadium was about to fall down every time there was a corner. And I think both... I think Lionel Messi's got a Celtic shirt as a memento of what it's like to play at Celtic Park. I think Xavi described it as the best atmosphere in Europe. Players from the continent admire, respect, and are a bit frightened of Celtic Park. That's the sort of thing that we always talk about. You know, you'll, someone someone will say it on the TV commentary to, on on Tuesday night, and, and everyone will go, "Oh my god!" Especially Rangers fans will be kind of, "This is such a cliche." But I think genuinely, there are a handful of stadiums in Europe where where players kind of go out and think, "Oh my, this is oh, this is a lot," and Celtic Park is one of them, and it applies to the very best. So even you know, Luka Modric has seen everything, Benzema has seen everything, done it all, five Champions Leagues, blah blah blah. They will go out to Celtic Park, they'll hear the roar, and I think they there is a chance that they might, even they might be slightly unnerved. And I'm annoyed I'm not going. 
Mm. I'm only not going to my my, my son's start school tomorrow. Oh, and right. That is marginally more important than than going to Celtic Real Madrid. <laughs> Good for you, Rory. You know where you can follow it, of course. Uh, I should also mention that the Totally Football Show European edition will be with you Tuesday lunchtime, looking ahead to all of the fixtures from match day one of the Champions League group stages. Also looking back to all the big games this weekend around Europe, a classic Milan derby, that Napoli victory I was mentioning, and also Union Berlin holding the mighty Bayern Munich to a draw, which means the Bavarians are not actually leading the Bundesliga. Rafa will explain more about that on Tuesday. Uh, if you subscribe, by the way, to this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, New episodes like our Tuesday edition will be there waiting for you as soon as we publish. All right, let's talk about Saturday at the City Ground then. Nottingham Forest 2, Bournemouth 3. Forest were 2-0 up. Let me get this right. They were 2-0 up at half-time to Bournemouth. That's managerless Bournemouth. Bournemouth who'd lost 9-0 last Saturday. And then what happened? <laughs> well, I think you have to credit... Bournemouth's approach really under Gary O'Neill I know Gary O'Neill mm-hmm. I was his ghostwriter, believe it or not what? when he was a young yes when in the days of players having personal websites um, I used to do this was at the start of my sort of journalism career you know I used to do um, Giggs's website I used to do Decanio's website where seriously <laughs> yeah I used to phone them up and interview them and just put it into their own words just write columns you know twice a week or whatever how much fantastic. so for example sorry yeah. But this is too delicious. So, when you were doing Decanio's column, would you oh. deliberately mess up the syntax, or what was the <laughs> throw in a few ill-advised Ill political? Well, of course. Well, I'm just yeah, waiting for the Gary O'Neill controversy to break. To be on, honest, on, on Palo Decanio, by the way, he he picked up a two-week uh, wages fine for one of the columns that that he wrote in conjunction with me because what? it became a back page splash criticizing. I think it was Glenn Roder at the time criticising his tactical approach, basically saying he was awful. And I, I went back to him and I went back to his agent and said, look, are you absolutely sure you want to do this? Because, you know, it's controversial, and uh, which goes against what I wanted to do. Mm. And, uh, and <laughs> to my absolute shock, um, the agent said, Paolo wants us to keep every word, mate. Like that and uh, yeah. and lo and behold, he, he got a two week fine. So yeah, it was it was heady days. It, it was it was it was great for me. And, and Gary O'Neill was part of the stable as a young player at Pompey, and obviously less less high profile at the time. But he was um, he was a pleasure to deal with. I've got to say, and he was a really nice lad. And I'm chuffed for him that he's got this opportunity to to fill the boots of um, of Scott Parker. And it was a dream audition for him. He switched the, the tactics at halftime, went to three at the back, very much bolder than Bournemouth were in the first few games. Scott Parker was, is a, is a very defensive coach, very cautious. That's his nature. And Gary O'Neill has kind of given the players a little bit more belief in themselves, said, actually, I think we're a bit better than that. I think you can go and hurt teams in this division if we play a little bit more proactively. And, and, and that's what they did in the second half at Nottingham Forest. So so kudos to Gary and, and to and to Bournemouth. And it was another great goal. We saw we saw some great goals this weekend. That mm. one from Billing was uh, was a real beaut. Certainly was. The Cherries had lost all forty of their previous Premier League games in which they'd been two nil down, but not this one. Was it a six pointer? Will it turn out to be? Daniel, you wrote that this feels like a very big twenty five minutes in Forest season for very obvious reasons, you said. Very briefly, what are those obvious reasons? Uh, very briefly, I think there are probably four or five, but one is that um, if you buy an awful lot of players, 
not only does it create uncertainty within the squad, which is what everyone's talking about in the, the doing a Fulham thing, it also raises the scrutiny on the few players that stay in the team from last season because it makes them more important. And sadly, after the game, it was those players who were being targeted most for criticism. Brennan Johnson, Joe Worrell, Scott McKenna, Ryan Yates, who are the four in that first choice team who were in the team last season. And they are now ones that some of the fans want to drop. It was it was bad from Cooper. He brought on Jack Colback when Forrest probably needed a bit more control in midfield. And he's he's you know he's a defensive player. There is a suspicion, I think, that that Cooper is still getting to terms with all the new players and therefore is preferring the ones who who he definitely wanted and that he knows from the championship. And that is going to present a problem at some point because the owners are incredibly ambitious. Uh, and when I say ambitious, I mean they'd quite like to finish in the top six. Mm. Um, so, of the my Premier League. Inher- of the Premier League, yes. Mm. Of my inherent negativity is that this could blow up very, very quickly. Uh, oh. And and when you've spent all your broadcasting revenues on new players, you can't really afford that to happen. Crikey! All right, we'll keep an eye on that. Next up, somewhere in London. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Tough week for officials and those they were officiating. The biggest refereeing controversy this weekend, probably uh, Blackfield-Shepton-Mallet in the FA Cup, where the Blackfield goalkeeper was sent off for urinating in a hedge. That's not a controversy. That seems like a... Is it, though? It seems like a valid decision, to be honest, if it's if it's during the game. Yeah. Yeah. What's up to him? What he does with his time? It's not on the field of play, is it? <laughs> that would, yeah, but you can't you can't just take the approach that it's as long as it's not within the white lines. You do what you like, right? You know, some, someone murders somebody else. You'll be like, well, it's not. We can't send him off for that because it's well, not. Well, that's on the pitch. a matter for a, a different set of authorities. I, I've been on I've been on in games where players have legged mm. it off a pitch yeah. to have a wee or yeah. to have a number two because mm-hmm. they're desperate. Yeah, uh, and they don't get sent off for that, do they? You know, but do they, do, do they have they gone to a toilet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but you know, the hedge is the park pitch's toilet. Is it? Is it? Is it? Is it, um, is it bringing the game into disrepute? It is depends whether it you. It depends whether you face into the hedge or not. Right. Okay. <laughs> is it? This is true. Something. 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 Tackle. Something. Something. Yeah. <laughs> Warranted a, a yellow. No. Uh, let's move on. Chelsea West Ham. Oh yeah. This was the one with the scandalous decision, as Moyes called it, uh, one of the worst VAR decisions since it's come into the game, in the words of Declan Rice, which he subsequently kind of rolled, dialed back on a bit. But I, I think the point stands. This was West Ham who'd taken the lead away at Stamford Bridge and then saw Chelsea come back to lead 2-1, would have equalised through Maxwell Corney but, uh, and his header. But then, well, what was the issue here? This was the... This is the foul on Edward Mendy, who was down on the ground, and Jared Bowen sort of lightly tapped him with his leg as he went past. It is an absolutely astonishing decision. It's bizarre. It, when I when I saw it on on match today, I couldn't I could not quite believe. It's not even soft. It's just it's complete. It's wrong. It's completely wrong. And I'm glad glad PGMOL have kind of come out and admitted that 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 it shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't the goal shouldn't have been overturned. It, but it's extraordinary that they. They didn't seem seem to realise that they even thought that they had to review it because mm. it's so it's so obviously just something that if anything you watch it and you think is that a penalty? Does Mendy take out Jared Bowen? I mean it's it's a 
staggering decision. It's- well, some some people feel that Boeing could have done more to lift his leg; that he, he trails his leg as he goes past, and as such, he's inviting the the, the problem. However, however, I'm not sure s- he trails it particularly. No, to be I, honest. But as you say, it has kind of been let known by the Premier League that Pogba has have said, "Yeah, we got that wrong," and the Newcastle one as well. And there's going to be urgent consultation. I think was the phrase with the Premier League about that. I'm not sure what that actually means beyond no, can you get that, off our that backs? Admission, and... This is something that, that fans quite often say in terms of linked to referees coming out and doing interviews after games where they say, look, if they just admitted their mistakes, we'd all appreciate it. And I think, yeah, you're, that's very short-sighted from seeing the understandably angry reaction of West Ham fans. That anger was not tempered by the PGMO coming out and going, yeah, that was wrong. You should have had a point, not naught. I just want to know who's actually in charge at the moment. We know that Howard Webb's on his way, and I, and I like mm. his his take on on VAR for, for, from the MLS. I think I think he will bring in positive change. But but yeah, who's actually what's his take running, on the on VAR? How's he? Well, it's just it, the higher bar. Um, I think more communication. I think he'd like to bring in more public communication where we get to hear one or two of the conversations a little bit more. Mm. Um, I think in general that where he's been working, VAR is is far more popular than it is. Here right now, it was yeah, it was an outrageous decision. I think Mendy deserves deserves a, an award for his sort of hoodwinkery, great uh, acting from him. Um, but yeah, it was it was a shocker. A quick word on on the football briefing. Mm-hmm. Chilwell was great when he came on, and this is what competition for places does, isn't it? Chill. It was a, it was curious that they went so all in on Cucurella when they've got Chilwell, and we're all a little bit like, eh, really? Do you need that? Uh, and Chilwell went out and showed why we were right to think that because it was an outstanding goal, wasn't it? The way that he controlled the crossfield pass and then sort of knocked it through the players' legs in from the angle. I thought that was brilliant. And of course, he he produced the assist as well for for Havert. So yeah, it, it's going to be great on that left hand side. I think Chilwell and Cucurella can can have a you know ding dong battle for a starting berth. Hmm, love one of those. It was a good weekend for using the word egregious. Another opportunity in the Newcastle Crystal Palace game, which finished goalless after officials disallowed the Tyrant Mitchell own goal for a foul on Vincente Gaeta, uh, which actually had been caused by a Palace player in the first place. But nil nil. Here's something that crept up on me Newcastle are winless since the opening day of the season. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I was less outraged by that VAR controversy than the others. Right, admit, I'm, I'm not that surprised. Maybe you're just becoming blasé now. Maybe, right. and I'm sure. New, I mean, Newcastle fans are all extremely angry, although not as angry as journalists who cover Newcastle for some reason. Um, but the the fact that they've they've not won since the opening day, they've only lost once. That last minute defeat mm. at Liverpool is yeah is curious. But then I suppose to be fair, you know they you know they played Man City at home. Make a case they certainly should have won on Saturday. They, they were the better team. It's not like it's been a disaster, but it, it, it's the the sub the kind of undercurrent with Newcastle this season will always be the desire from people within the club which I think is legitimate to to build slowly and organically or as organically as you can when you're backed by a state regime and how how the Mohammed bin Salman who's not the guy in charge of Saudi Arabia he's the other Mohammed bin Salman whether that's enough for them and it, it has been slightly slower maybe than they'd have liked to the, mm. over the first six games even if performances broadly have been encouraging. Okay, Adrian, we're about to lose you because you're about to head off and do the Handbrake Off Arsenal podcast from The Athletic. So briefly, did you have anything that you want to contribute on the subject of Brentford and their 5-2 over Leeds? Yeah, I do. Ivan Tony, I just love him as a player. He's just you wouldn't would never want to mark Ivan Tony, and I'm I'm chuffed for him that he's now 
elevated himself to someone that is talked about as being a possible England player. It's it, it's it's a great progression because we talked just talking about Newcastle. They didn't want him as a kid. They didn't think he was good enough. And look where he is now. I was asked before the close of the transfer window, which third striker would I like to see Arsenal sign? And and I, I didn't hesitate. It's Ivan Tony. I would lo- I would absolutely love to see him there. I think he'd be a brilliant backup for um for Gabriel Jesus. Patrick was sensational. And uh, yeah, the free kick, the, one of the cleanest free kick strikes I've seen in years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, the, and the hat-trick goal was just, yeah, it was glorious, wasn't it? The little, the, the sort of dribble and dink into the, into the empty net. So yeah, well done, Ivan Tony. And uh, yeah, I think, I think his future is really, really bright. Brilliant. Adrian, thank you so much. Enjoy the handbrake <laughs> yeah, nice off. One. Thanks, guys. We'll be out later on. Take care. On Monday, Arthur, oh, sorry, Adam Arthur saying how many players have scored the Tony hat-trick Penalty, free kick, open play feels like it would be an elite list. And Daniel, as you were pointing out, the exciting thing about the last goal was the fact that he did it from outside the area. Yeah, his f- first and second league goals from outside the box, Ivan Tony. It's he, for all his movement, he, he he's brilliant at running those channels, and yet he what makes him incredibly effective is that he somehow ends up in the penalty area all the time when the ball's delivered into the box. And um, yeah, I mean, I agree with Adrian. He he almost certainly will be in that England's next England squad because if you look at the the, the other strikers the the non-Harry Kane strikers Southgate's picked it's it's Tammy Abraham who who must still be up there and I think Southgate was watching him albeit lose 4-0 to yeah. Udinese and get taken off with an injury uh, and then it's Ollie Watkins Patrick Bamford and Dominic Calvert-Lewin none of which are are in a place that Tony is at the moment so I think he probably will be in that squad there you go only Man City have scored more goals than Brentford this season Ivan Tony himself with 52 now in 96 appearances for Brentford. Uh, This game also saw Jesse Marsh sent off for his protestations on the sideline. And after spending much of this podcast complaining about VAR, I'm now going to say, why didn't VAR intervene on Leeds' penalty shout? Well, Well, yeah, yeah, but Marsh is going to have to, at some point, Marsh is going to have to stop playing this kind of pantomime character where he hops and downs. Well, I would have been upset in his place. Yeah, but this season already, he's he's almost had a fight with Bruno Larger. He's fallen out with Thomas Tuchel. He got a yellow card last weekend, which he accepts was unacceptable behaviour. He needed to change and then promptly got sent off the week after, which means he'll serve a touchline ban. It, mm. I'm not sure it helps. It, it makes Leeds feel more chaotic when the one thing I think when looking at Leeds is this could work if you're really disciplined. But at the same time, it is important that, that Jesse Marsh does all this to, to illustrate that Americans do truly get our league. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. he is becoming a, he's becoming a being of pure Bartleys, and I think that's really important. <laughs> that is <laughs> fair. Nice. Elsewhere on Saturday, Spurs beat Fulham 2-1, and Wolves had a 1-0 victory over Saints. How excited are we at the news that Wolves are making moves to add Diego Costa to their ranks? This follows the injury to uh, Sasa Kalajic, who did his ACL early on in uh, Wolves' game uh, this weekend. Costa has been a free agent for the last eight months after leaving Atletico Mineiro. Grace Robertson says, can he get registered in time to play Darwin Nunez on Saturday? Ooh. There is something inherently Premier League about the idea that... I mean, it's t- first, first of all, the injury to, to Kalajic is really tragic. That's really, really sorrowful, and to, particularly that injury. After you know, on his debut after the big move, but mm. there is something very Premier League about the fact that the first thing that they sort of, I don't know what they, what would the symbol be that they, that they broadcast into the sky? Would it be sort of pulling someone's shirt? Would it be feigning an injury? Would it be uh, maybe a sly little elbow, a little dig in the ribs for Diego Costa? 
Maybe that fire extinguisher that he holds over oh, the yeah, gym. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, the first answer is right. Let's let's get Diego in. I didn't realize he hadn't played, and you hadn't. Been, he was on a free after leaving Mineiro, but I didn't realize he'd not played for eight months. You wonder how how useful could that be in the immediate short term? I, d- I don't mm. know. Diego Costa wasn't the sort of person who who always looked like he would. He had that kind of naturally athletic physique. Is that fair? Mm. I'm not sure he'll be. He'll be able to hit the ground running, although he will. Maybe, maybe he doesn't need to do any running. Maybe he, he can just sort probably of hit the ground. Hit the ground, or yeah. yeah, pretend to be injured. That those mm. those are among his greatest strengths. So he might be able to provide that sort of backup. But they do still ha- they still have Raúl Jiménez. They do, yeah. Uh, well, exciting anyway to see that favourite character reintroduced to the uh, popular ongoing series, the Premier League. Uh, Wolves, in the meantime, against Saints, picking up their first victory since April. The goal from Daniel Padense. Uh, I mentioned Spurs beating Fulham 2-1. And I guess Richarlison was the big talking point in this game. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Him and him and Clement Longley, actually, who uh, was doing these sort of transfer window reviews last week. And he was easily the highest profile signing that I'd completely forgotten about this summer uh, on loan from Barcelona. And I kind of thought he was just there as sort of squad ballast for, for Conte. But with with Joe Rodon going, it, it's a kind of one for one, and and he you know, obviously started on Saturday and looked really good. He, he of the three centre backs, he's the one that seems to really step out from the back. He had I think like twenty percent of his touches were in Fulham's half, so he was kind of moving forward with the ball um, while while Dyer and Romero were were staying put, and it looks like it really works. And I thought again, it was interesting hearing Conte saying after the game, I don't know if this is a dig at Jed Spence, but it sure sounds like it, given how much Conte's dug at Jed Spence in the last week and he sort of said well he's come from a big club which means I don't need to explain every single aspect of the game to him like I might have to with others so he clearly likes the fact that he's come in from big club used to playing big games and and he did look pretty good I have to say on debut as did Richarlison although unfortunate moment there when he scored celebrated by taking his shirt off got booked for it but then the goal was disallowed why was the Yellow card still... Why doesn't that get rescinded with... You know, given that the event he was celebrating has now been struck from the record, surely his celebration also should go? I believe it's because although VAR does have a lot of power, it doesn't transport us into an alternative reality. Oh. I think that is the... So the, the event has still happened. It just doesn't mean what we think it meant. He still removed his shirt on the football pitch. But VAR also, on a technical point, can't intervene on yellow cards, only on red cards. So... I think. Do, do we not think that in twenty in twenty twenty two it's time we got rid of the yellow card for taking your shirt off? I think we can all handle a little bit of sort of semi nudity. <laughs> My is God, it, we need it. Is, <laughs> is that what it's for, Rory? I always assumed it was because it delayed the game or something. No. There might be there might be some sort of um, reason for that. Like, so it's due to that. But no, it's. It, I, th- I think it's. Is it not bringing the game into, into disrepute or something? Is it's it? one of those. It's like a moral. Of a of, it's like a moral offence. Right. I mean, Fair yeah. Too many people swooning. Maybe that's the mm. risk. There's, there's there's too much swooning in. It's like a health, not book, enough. Not it's enough. It's like a health swoon. and safety thing. X okay. swoon. X swoon. He got booked. And speaking of getting booked, <laughs> just to finish off, Rory, I realised that we've romped through another busy weekend in the Premier League, and haven't as yet addressed the subject of Paul the Octopus and more of what expected goals offers the intrepid reader. Uh, it well, it's been the whole the whole podcast has actually been quite a good advert for it. Because you oh, heard yeah. Adrian and Daniel in particular reinforcing their points by using data. 
and although that's something that, that podcast listeners now are really used to and football fans in general are really used to and Daniel and Adrian both do it brilliantly it, that's really that's really new within football 25 years ago before podcasts existed that wasn't how we talked about football it's not how we thought about football a lot of that those data points were just not things that were considered they didn't invent the assist until the 1990s so that obviously people had a concept of like someone had set the goal up but no one thought about counting them until i think the 1994 world cup which is extraordinary mm. you could watch football matches on tv when you know maybe not on Channel 4, from my memories of Channel 4 is that there was always a box score during the, the, the box Italian score. Day. No, so the box score came in. I could. I mean, that was a guy called Dave Hill brought that in. He, he He's an Australian guy who was brought in when Sky was set up in, mm. in the early 90s, actually before, you know, became Sky Sports with the Premier League. And he's, because I, I was working there at the time, and he used to go around, what's the f***ing score? And he was just mystified at the fact that you could switch on a game. And if you were unlucky enough to have missed the score caption, you could go 10 minutes without knowing which team was in the lead, which is a frankly bizarre state of affairs. It's, it's mad. But yeah, if you watch all those 1980s cup finals, mm. missed the first 10 minutes, no idea what the score is. Anyone could be winning. You've got to, got to try and guess from context, which in some ways made it more thrilling. But yeah. if you think about where we were in terms of how little data around football there was to where we are now where you can talk about 20% of someone's touches being outside the, the penalty area and it's it's natural and it's not only natural it's how how fans in general I think analyse football much more it's how football in particular thinks about itself much more how we talk about football how people within football talk about football it has been an astonishing change and a lot of it's happened in the last 10 to 20 years mm. and it's that period that expected goals focuses on to explain what has been I think quite a quiet revolution but a really important one right begins in Metro Manila that much I know from uh, racing through the opening opening pages and it, uh, it involves some very unexpected protagonists this uh, football revolution I'm looking forward to reading more of it listener particularly getting to the Paul the Octopus joke my sides are, stra <laughs> are strapped in anticipation I'm going to be really disappointed by that joke no well, yeah that the, there are Behind the scenes, there have been lots of people who've done a lot of stuff hmm. um, to change football when football didn't really want to be changed. And I think they have changed it far more than even they recognise. These backroom boffing with, with their laptops. Yeah, and their air-conditioned offices. Yeah. Gurus. Gurus. Hmm. Very good. Well, thank you for your guru-esque performances today. <laughs> Rory and Daniel, uh, Adrian, who was with us until a short time ago, can now be enjoyed on Handbrake Off the Arsenal podcast. Many thanks to producer Charlie as well and listener above all to you. Tuesday we're back with the Euro show and then Thursday we'll be looking back on the Champions League action and forward to another weekend in the Premier League. Do join us for some or indeed all of that. And now though, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following The Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.